Welcome to the first of two rambles this month. Coming up, a conversation with Mike McCormack about his latest novel, This Plague of Souls. But before that, a meetup with John Patrick McHugh. I came across John's collection, Pure Gold, back in the spring, and it's stayed with me ever since. Definitely one of my favorite books this year. The opener is an incredible short story called Bonfire, and it sets out many of the themes that fill JP's work, namely the fragility and cutthroat business of friendship. I started by asking John about that first story and how it had come about. It's kind of amazing, like that first line, uh, we the fires, Terry and I, that has always been there. And the structure of the story has pretty much always been there in my head where it kind of goes back and forward in kind of time and the telling. Um, and a lot has changed, kind of a, a social dynamic has come into it over the years, but like the actual structure of the story has been pretty much there since the beginning. Now I've picked at it over those 12 years until I published, so it was, it was about maybe eight years since I wrote it that it, was, it, it became in the book itself. So over that, I was picking at it and changing it and developing maybe more about the this kind of um, class dynamic in it, but uh, the actual bones and the structure had been there since I think I, I sent it to Mike all those years before. Was it was it like trying to understand what the story was about over that time? Yeah, I, I think it's like a, I believe it's a real development of, of you kind of go through as a writer because I feel like first when you start writing, you almost think, well, I, I certainly always thought, oh, people would just want, want, want me to describe this field again and again and again. You know, you <laughs> almost like, you kind of start to believe in the lyrical is the only thing you know and like lyrical language is so important i love it and stuff like that but something has to happen there has mm. to be a reason it has to be a kind of emotion behind it so bonfire to me was very much began very much being a lyrical um story and it still is but like it was all about the language and i was trying to get across um the language of burning and the language of like youth and how kind of raw my view of youth was when i was nine or ten but then as i kind of stayed with it for a while and it's always funny about these kind of things that friendship with terry was always like this the big thing that linked it all together it was really about that friendship and it was only when i kind of gave it a couple of years away from it that that friendship really developed and now that's the strong you know now the bonfire isn't the most important thing you know whereas that when i first started writing that story it was all about oh wouldn't it be great to describe a fire in an interesting way yeah, uh, yeah. and then it, it became really what it was about was about these two boys and kind of what can separate two boys that they shouldn't be separated. One of the things that I quickly learned about you as a writer when I was reading it was you're very comfortable taking us to uncomfortable places. There's a lot of private fears and lack of self-awareness and so on. Is that something that you have to demand of yourself as a writer? Or does that come, you know, you're aiming for it and that's where you're headed? No, it's definitely something I've had to develop and kind of like get better at. I, I, I can't, I, every writer goes through, and I do think a lot of writers can write lyrically beautiful. I don't think it's that hard to write a lyrically beautiful sentence. I know that might sound really awful <laughs> to say aloud, but what I mean is like if you work <laughs> on it enough, you'll be able to write a, a good sentence. While I think it's a lot harder is to write a sentence that, that shows something, that brings an emotion. Like, it, you know, big big words and big language, doesn't often give that feeling so it was definitely something i had to work on because i was always so interested in the sentence by sentence level and you can only get so far with that it, it can get a bit showy you need something there needs to be 
a gulf where you kind of jump and kind of get into something raw and heavy. Um, so something I definitely worked on and definitely had to get better at. It's funny, like a lot of people say these stories are dark and stuff like that. And they say it to me, <laughs> I'm always kind of like, oh, are they? You know, and I, I, I get it. But like, also I'm like, you know, I feel like everyone thinks like this or, you know, if you, or at least, at least I suppose I just, I do. Um, so yeah, I don't find like there are a few very crude few places that I go, but like, I feel like they're actually just really honest. And that crudeness mm. is something that's can be honest. It can be disgusting, honestly, but it's at least honest. And I, yeah, as long as the reader appreciates that. I think the honesty really comes when you're writing about male relationships. Um, there's a particularly the lack of communication and the counterpoint between appearance and inner conflict. What attracts you to writing in that space? John yeah I think all my relationships are all kind of this I'm just so interested in power dynamics and how power presents itself in like intimate relationships so like even you know the the, the couple relationships I feel like they have this but yeah the, the men the male relationships are, are so interesting to me because I just remember I suppose it is my own I feel like I always had this curiosity of like male relationships male friendships because they always felt like so close to the edge you know they're, they're kind of like they're you know there is this like stereotype of like women being bitches but like men are like can be like like cycles to each other and they're quiet about it and just like you know there's always like this one-upmanship and there's always safety like you always I well I always was aware of who in the group was you know the top of the table I couldn't mess with them otherwise they'll put me in the relegation zone they always felt like there's like these <laughs> tiny, tiny little battles between men and like I remember, I went on my first stag, and like it was a two-day affair. I remember the first night, you know, everyone was so leery. Everyone was like, "Oh yeah, drink, drink, drink." And then the second day, I've never seen anything like it. Like it was just men crying in their little bunks and like bringing <laughs> home to these girl, their girlfriends and wives, and just being like, "I miss you." It's just like I just feel like male friendship can be so, so much is hidden, and yet like men in my in my experience, like can actually take offense at the slightest thing. Mm. Uh, so I just find that really interesting. Cause then also you have your couple this with that ma male friendships, they struggle to communicate. They struggle to say things out. And I don't think that's a cliche. I do think that's true. Even between men who are like more in touch with their feelings, I still think they struggle to articulate it um, out. So yeah, I find that a fascinating place for fiction because the, that power dynamics there. And also you can just like tease it out and have a bit of fun with it. Did you find that you were writing through intimation a lot because of that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like, it, it does allow, it does allow, as a fiction writer, it does you allow, allow you these like great moments where you can like stick the knife in and just like, like I'm thinking of like the, the relationship between John and, and Studsy in the last story is kind of like a cruel one. You think it's one-sided cruelty. And then at the end, you actually see John probably being saying the worst thing about Studsy when Studsy kind of has this moment of inner reflection and stuff like that. Yeah, so I find that that kind of fun. You can make leaps like that, and um, yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's murky, murky waters, which are always a fun thing to tread in when you're when you're writing a short story. The final story that you're talking about there has um, a passage about endings, and I, I was really struck by the inevitability of them. What what was on your mind when you were writing that? kind of came out quite naturally I didn't even know I was writing it and then it came to the end and uh yeah it was very 
it was a very hard thing to write and it's a very hard thing to, to read even now. I felt like at the time I was taking advantage of things and I think the only way I, could, I couldn't take advantage of a situation was to be so honest that it's like, it was kind of, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of it. It was really, it was a really tough thing to write. Um, but it was something that I didn't even, it, it just happened. It just came out. I knew that was going to be the ending and it, it, I kind of had to battle to keep it in the collection of, or at least keep it in the story I had like before that I always share it with a couple of friends and only one writer actually got it, understood why I was there. The rest were all uh, and thought they should just cut it out and just save a bit of word. Wow. Really? So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of, I'm very proud of it, but it, yeah, it's one of those things that I didn't even conceptualize it. It just kind of came out when I was just finished. It's the only way I could end that story. Mm. Well, it's an amazing piece of writing what's next for you John I'm working on a novel now um, I was very lucky that the book was bought by Forza Estate um, in the UK and they bought a novel with it so yeah it'll be a novel with Forza Estate hopefully 2025 uh, yeah I'm close enough to the end um, yeah and I'm, I'm excited about it it was kind of like two years after you you write a collection it's kind of like how do you write fiction <laughs> I feel like I got, really, got in last year and I'm kind of like yeah been lucky enough to be able to do it full time so yeah that's what I'm, I'm doing at the moment oh it'll be great to chat again when um when that's all ready to go yeah please god please god and hopefully it won't be 2035 and I'm like oh no <laughs> next year so definitely <laughs> thanks so much John thanks for being Sam Thanks to John for taking the time to chat. Pure Gold is available through Fourth Estate. Just follow the link in the pop blurb to get yourself a copy. So Mike McCormack needs very little introduction. Booker Prize nominated, Goldsmith and Rooney Prize winner. I was made up to get the chance to speak to Mike about his latest novel, This Plague of Souls. It's a story about a man who returns home to an empty house and then is persistently called by a stranger who refuses to take no for an answer. Part noir, part metaphysical thriller, the story is beautifully realised. So I started by asking Mike if he could set the scene a little for us of This Plague of Souls. Okay, um, well, This Plague of Souls... Uh is a continuation, a thematic continuation from the previous novel, which was Solar Bones, which was the story of uh, an engineer who returns to his own house and uh, and who has a long meditation on his life and his, his life and his family and his work as an engineer in this part of the world where he's from, which is the west of Ireland. And that was a story about that was a story about about how when I when I had that book finished, uh, I realized what I'd written was a story about how men build worlds, about how they build engineering worlds, artistic worlds, familial worlds. And sometimes for one reason or another, they can't live in them. But it was situated in in the rural west of Ireland and pretty much mentally around where my own where I come from, which is around Lewisburg in County Mayo, a little small coastal town. And I, when I had finished, when I had finished uh, Solar Bones, I, I thought I'd love to have another crack at this theme. I've done an engineer, I've done an engineer, and I'd love to have one more crack at it. Uh, and I'd like to try an artist this time to see what an artist would do. 
And so that very quickly morphed into the idea of um, of a, a, a book set in the same place, um, but a book that's in much darker shades and tones. Uh, Solar Bones was quite sunlit and uh, sunlit and expansive, whereas uh, this Plague of Souls is darker and I think much more, much more focused and concentrated in both its geography and its theme and its gallery of characters, and um, and it it uh, purports or attempts to be a meditation on the same thing: the building of worlds, the building of uh, an artistic world, uh, an engineering construct of sorts, and also crucially. For some reason or other, the idea of building worlds seems to me to have become synonymous with building families, with holding families together and that. And that's became <clears throat> that became a central meditation in 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 both uh, Solar Bones and in this Plague of Souls. And uh, the the book is. It's uh, it's a third person. It's a third person narrative. Uh, unlike Solo Bones, it's a third-person narrative, but it is um, squarely and relentlessly focused on the figure of Neelan, who returns to his home in the middle of the night, and uh, who seems to he seems to have is completely surprised that there is no wife and child there waiting for him, and uh, that's the be- that's the beginning of the book. You know, it's so strange. I was when I, when I finished this book. And it just shows how clueless you can be about your work. I had no sense of of beginning the book in the exact same way that I had with Solar Bones. Like Solar Bones begins with a man with an Angelus bell going off and a man entering, coming to his own kitchen on that and then blundering around the place. And this Plague of Souls is almost a variation on that scene. It's it's a man returning to his own house, and it's not an Angelus bell that that goes off. It's the his phone goes off in his pocket, rings in his pocket, and instead of a bell tolling, it's a voice ringing, and there are these series of exchanges with a man who he doesn't know from Adam, and then he spends a couple of minutes blundering around his own house. So it was. Um, I was completely taken by surprise to think, oh, I've written the same, I've written the same book again. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's just it showing how, how clueless you can be about your own work. It felt to me to be a very timely book, specifically with this theme running through it about the effect that one person can have. I seem to be drawn to to um very vivid tentpole central characters. Uh, whom whether it's whether it's whether it's and whether it's in first person uh whether it's first person narrations or first person or third person i'm I'm quite surprised that this has turned out to be a third person uh narration um it it uh, i wouldn't have thought that uh, starting starting the book um so long ago um and because of that i i i uh my books tend to be focused around one person and then they get then they have then they have these a series of relationships with other people i've done it in solar bones i've done it in this plague of souls i've done it in 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 notes from from a coma in which there is a central character who is in a coma but he dominates every single page of the book and um, he he is the 
he is uh, all there's five narrators in that book and they're all turned towards him they they speak of nothing but him they talk about nothing but him so you know it's it's, it's one of the things that that um one of the recurring things is in, in my in my work seems to be identity and self identity um and how you how you see yourself and how you project an identity into the world and the world sees that identity and it either accepts it or it questions it. And there seems to be a little bit of that uh, in this book. This man claims to be, this man claims to be innocent of what, what, what this other man puts in front of him. And, uh, and they, so they have this back and forth conversation. Um, he seems to have one stage have been an artist, uh, but his wife seems to think that, no, you were not an artist. You were a con man, or you were a, you were a, a a criminal. So, for that reason, I think central characters and the effect they have, and the effects that they have on the world, have kind of dominated my, 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 my fiction. The five or six books that I've done. Mike, could you talk about the scale of the fictional worlds that you build in this? novel there's a sense of an individual in a much much bigger world and I, I found that quite rare and unnerving in 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 that sense and that that goes throughout all of your work really could you talk a little around that yeah and that, that's 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 an interesting point because because I, I would have thought that that um i would have thought this plague of souls was quite cramped in its locale in many ways in that, that it is it is very the first third of it is very tightly focused in in on the homestead the home place where he comes from and then there is this yeah in the in the second part of the book it 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 opens out into a a 30 page car journey which is a pretty linear which is a pretty linear um uh, landscape and then there is a the last 60 70 pages are a kind of uh, the last 60 70 pages are are in a, in a in an open lit foyer in a hotel and that uh, and those are the three locales of the book but it, i think you're right in the sense that there is a sense of scale outside the book that mm. these things that these three locales take place in a bigger universe and mm. i think that's always you know my books do tend to reach for the stars or uh, in 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 sense of they're always they're always kind of they're always aware of the scale of the human condition um we're very small this house we inhabit is very small compared with the universe around us and that and how are we here and why are we here and uh, so you're right in that sense uh it it, it, it this sense of conflicting scales uh we have these huge problems we have this anguish we have this happiness we have this heartbreak and then around us there's this massive universe that really does not you know doesn't care too much it's not not that interested in us um so yeah that 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 conflicting scales and warring scales are a kind of uh are are, are something i return to uh, again and again particularly in in these books and mo and most of my my two books well in fact all my books are are set in um all my books are are set in in the west of ireland um 
you know, I found that in my last two or three books, my, my pen, every time I put my pen to paper, it veers off to West Mayo, where, where I'm from. Um, I always say that there's a pull in the steering of the pen, that it just it just turns away off towards Lewisburg and that. And, um, and I think, you know, it's because, I think, you know, it's because a lot of what happens in my book is is quite is quite is in some sense ridiculous if you take it if you if you lift it out and if the premises are quite ridiculous in some ways that um sort of bones the ghost story um notes from a coma is a kind of a is a is a science fiction story and and they're all set in this you know within a couple of miles of each other in Lewisburg and Mayo which is all green fields and little wet roads and and sheep on the hills and everything like that. But it is something that I know. It's something that I'm intimate with. I know this place. And it seems to me that my my imagination returns there because anything can happen then. Once I have this, it's kind of solid ground uh, under my feet. And once I'm there, once my imaginative feet are planted in it, then anything can happen. Then, mm. then... These are the basic certainties. These are the givens that anything can happen after that. And so I've had these crazy penal experiments. I've had the novels about ghosts. I've had this novel about this kind of artistic construct. But they're all very realistically grounded in this uh, West Mayo universe and that, uh, which which is which is a, a universe of small fields and little roads but it's under a big sky. It's under a big, huge blue sky. Mike, I wanted to ask you about how you balance narrative with the ideas in the book. Yeah, it, it's it's a bit of a problem, isn't it? I mean, you can... Sometimes you fall into explication mode and you fall into debate rather than dialogue. And um, But yeah, I... I um, I was very lucky that uh, I, I, I told you that I came to the city in 1985 or 86 to study philosophy, and um, we had a we had a, a professor of philosophy. His name is Edwin Rabbit, and he he gave us a course on uh, on he gave us a course on on uh, the beginning of the beginnings of modern philosophy. And of course, he started with Descartes, and Descartes has that great moment of you know i think therefore i am this notion of ridding the world of everything that is not obviously true and there's, a, there's there was an expression there's a famous expression it won't come to me now and um, all all those things that are not absolutely clear he cut the world back to fundamentals and then what is the only thing he's left with and he's left with is is that i am the thinking thing i am i i think therefore i am and i know that my professor would not have seen that as a dramatic moment as a, as a, as a dramatic moment he would have seen it as 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 an idea but i saw it and it's probably if i look back on it i if i look back on that moment of me learning about that moment i i, I would think actually actually the writing was on the wall for you there you didn't you didn't just see it as an idea you saw it as a drama this this lone philosopher sitting at a this lone philosopher sitting in a chair trying to make sense of the world, stripping it back to its absolute first principles and arriving at nothing but the thinking self. And and and, and I saw that moment as a drama. Uh, I saw that moment as a drama. 
um, not as not as a sequence of ideas. Uh, I saw it as a human drama. I could see him in his room and it was probably cold and dark because that's the way the world would have been at the time. And I remember reading that Descartes didn't get out of bed until 11 o'clock in the morning. And of course, that made him a hero of mine because I wouldn't have got out of bed until 11 o'clock in the morning at that age. And um, so I've seen ideas as dramas from that moment, from that moment. And it's only actually as I'm talking about it now, it's only as I'm talking about it now that that, that I'm beginning to realise this. I've always seen ideas as dramas. They don't just uh, I've seen them. I've seen them in existential circumstance, uh, not as in not as if these free floating abstract constructs that have no human involvement. There's a brilliant quotation about Colin Wilson when he he talks about his own involvement with philosophy and with fiction and that. And And he says he says something to the effect that if an idea cannot be examined and explicated in terms of believable human characters, then he says it's a sure sign that that idea has nothing to do with the human condition. And that was his brilliant, elegant um, justification of the novel, Mm. uh, that the novel is the proper proving ground for an idea, that if 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 it can't be worked out, illustrated, debated in terms of believable human circumstance, then it's a sure sign that it's 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 neither for the novel and it's neither for humans. <laughs> so so um so I think I took I I remember and again I can remember reading that I I can remember coming across that idea really early as well uh, in in um I can remember coming across that idea really early in my in my in my reading and encounter with literature and philosophy yeah. When you were writing this, Mike, where did your thoughts take you about the personal cost of doing the right thing? Whatever this man has done or hasn't done, and and I and I really don't know. Again, again, this is one of the things about the book. You know, I've said this before that I can tell you what happens within the scope of the 180 pages, but I can't tell you much about what happens outside that. I don't really know if he's responsible. I don't really know what. You know how the book concludes. I don't know what happens after the closing pages. Uh, I don't know whether he's guilty of this, that, or the next thing. And, and that was one of the tasks I set myself. Mm. Was, was, um, I, I set myself certain aesthetic tasks. I wanted to write a noir. I wanted to write a a, a, a book that was short and clipped. Um, and but I also believe it or not, wanted to write a book that I couldn't explain, that I could not. Uh, that I, I could not uh, um, uh, talk about the the background circumstance because that I don't know. You know, I don't know. He comes home for 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 from. He comes home from. Um, he's been let out on remand. He's been, he, sorry, he's been. His trial has collapsed. I don't know whether he's guilty or not guilty. Um, and then he's accused of this other thing. I don't know. Uh, his wife and child. Where are they? Well, that either. Okay, so. But but what struck me when I'd finished the book was that whatever he has done, he his his involvement and his regard for his family is, and and his wish to be with his family that he 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 would he would he would destroy the world just to be with his family, and I and I found that I was quite taken, I was quite taken aback with that, um that they mean absolutely everything to him, Mm -hmm. whatever his gifts are. 
and he has turned his back on his gifts in many ways. He's an artist in, in who he kind of left down his brushes and turned towards his wife and children at one stage in his life and that uh, he doesn't seem to have expressed much regret about that. Uh, and, um, and he was he was seriously gifted, but he would he would see the world go to hell uh, just to spend one more hour with his wife and child. And I found that I found that really interesting. I was very, very taken aback when that calculus revealed itself to me at the end of the book. You know, the writing of a book is the writing of a book is is uh, is a real adventure for a writer. No book was ever written in a writer's head. And I didn't know how it was going to end. Uh, you know, I didn't know how it was going to end. The, the, the last scene was the very, very last thing I wrote in the book. Um, and uh, and um, and I was kind of, oh, right. So that's what it's about. Um, <laughs> so to answer your question, the cost, doing the right thing. Um, I don't know. For me, as a person and a writer, it's 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 everything. You try and live a decent. You try and be a decent human being. You try and do the right thing. Those things have all become. Those things have been all become more and more weighted for me in my own life. In that I've come to fatherhood quite you know quite late in my life, and that I was I became a dad at forty eight. Uh, so so these things are kind of or lived existential questions for myself and I was very very struck with how much how much they how much they um how important they were for Neelan there was um there's a scene in the book where Neelan is with his father and they're in um a cattle shed and they have a conversation that about the rain and I think it's the bit that stuck with me the most because it feels to me that this, although there's a lot of darkness in this book, like literally and figuratively, there is a big strand of hope that runs through it in this sort of transcendence where throughout the book in different ways, Nilon manages to transcend situations, see beyond them. And it was encapsulated in that bit with his father where he understood what he meant by wet rain, even yeah. though, you know. Could, could you talk a little, Mike, finally about the role of transcendence in the novel and the, the hope that that offers. Yeah, and you're and you're certainly. I think that's actually the crucial scene in the book. Uh, for certainly for for Neilan himself, he steps back out into the yard and walks through the hay shed, the curved space over his head holding the still air within. Old hay is banked against the far wall, grey and mouldy now. A wad of black silage cover lies deflated in the middle of the floor. The whole assemblage looks like a carefully staged memorial, a site-specific installation to a way of life gone completely, a way of life which would never evolve beyond these parts. How many times has he stood in this hayshed with his father to shelter from a passing shower, standing together and listening in silence to the rain falling on the galvanised roof, hearing the whole structure hum in a single continuous note, such moments always seem to hang outside of time, suspended intervals within their lives together on their small farm. And as the rain fell, the young Neelan sometimes wondered if this same rain might have fallen through the same angle and light across his light from the day of his birth. And if so, was it a sorrow or a consolation? He remembers also how his mood moved him once as a child to an embarrassing tautology. Watching the rain rolling towards him across the fields in thick swathes, he was startled to hear himself say out loud, That's wet rain. Spoken as if there was any chance there could be any other kind. 
and his voice hung in the soft light, invoking some infinite foolishness until his father, apparently seeing nothing redundant in what he had said, doubled on it with, that is wet rain, and then added for good measure, and never an end to it. And for whatever reason, this is one of the moments in their lives together that Neelan holds dear and that comes back to him most often. A moment with a weight of understanding which reaches across the years. There is that he he has the father has a complete understanding of what he says when he's when he when he comes out with this tautology, he said, that's wet rain. And the father said, That is wet rain. Um and and he, he the child thinking he was foolish and, and the father saying, Oh no, it's not foolish, it, it makes complete sense to me. Um and with this issue of transcendence, I I you know I you're right in thinking. I, I think that was a moment of, even though, even that though that moment becomes fraught, it's a moment of of shared love and understanding, and it's even a moment in in spite of the fact that they, in spite of the fact that they that they talk and that there's a di- a short dialogue. It seems to me to be surrounded by a vast universal silence, uh, and that and and um, and they're okay as long as they're there, standing shoulder to shoulder. And hearing that rain coming down on the on the they're in a hay shed, hearing the rain coming down on the hay shed over their head, then that's uh, the, the, I think you're right. There is something hopeful about that. Um, they, they they might be alone in the universe, the two of them, but at least they are together. And that a huge thank you to both Mike and John for taking the time to talk. Thanks to you two for listening. Please let 2024 be a year of peace for the people of Gaza, Syria, Ukraine, Sudan, and anywhere else where they're suffering right now. See you in the new year. Till then, big love. Happy Christmas. in my stream. stream.